Good morning, my brothers and sisters. I want to share with you a passage from Isaiah chapter 57 that caught my eye earlier this year when I was teaching through this book in one of our classes. Um, I want to give you some historical background on the passage before we read the text. You probably know that Isaiah was called to be a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah around the year 740 B.C. Now, approximately two centuries earlier, in 931 B.C., the United Kingdom of Israel had split when Solomon died, and after that we've got the northern kingdom, which came to be called Israel, and that can be confusing when you read your Old Testament. The southern kingdom came to be called Judah. Now, the northern kingdom was ruled basically by an unbroken string of ungodly kings, and there were many turnovers in dynasties and a number of murders. And about 18 years after Isaiah began his public ministry, in 722, God said, I have had enough. He terminated the reign of the kings of the northern kingdom. He sent the Assyrians in. They conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. They deported most of her people to other parts of the Assyrian empire. They left a few people behind who intermarried with others who were brought in, and they became the Samaritans that we hear about in the New Testament. Now, a few years later, around 701, the Assyrians decided to come in and try to take Judah also. But things turned out differently. God protected Judah and Jerusalem. And the story of that protection is found in Isaiah chapter 37 and 38. We won't go through that story today. But I want you to have a feeling for where we are in history. When Isaiah begins to speak, the northern kingdom is about to fall, and the southern kingdom is under threat from Assyria. Now, most of the kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, were faithful to God, but many of the people of Judah were not. Even though Hezekiah was reigning over Judah during most of the time when Isaiah had his ministry and he was a godly king, many of the common people had taken up the practice of worshiping the idols of Canaan. And as the years would pass after Isaiah died, the southern kingdom would begin that downward descent into idolatry that would lead to their destruction in 586. Isaiah himself was probably killed by Hezekiah's own son, Manasseh, who is notorious as one of the worst kings of Judah. Well, God called Isaiah, and his mission was to warn the people of Judah that they, like the people of the northern kingdom, we're in danger of God's judgment. And our text in Isaiah 57, we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses, is part of that warning. Now, in this chapter, God is going to tell the story of two groups of people, two objects of worship, two attitudes toward death, and two outcomes. And like much of life, this is a story where appearances can be deceiving. And God is going to, to a certain extent, pull back the curtain and give us a glimpse 
of what lays beyond death. In this passage, he reminds us of his promise of an inheritance for the saved and of his judgment for the sinner who refuses to repent and of his mercy for the sinner who seeks his mercy. Now, if you have your Bible, I would like you not to read your Bible as I read this passage. Just put your finger in your Bible or turn your phone upside down and listen as I read the passage. I'm reading from Isaiah chapter 57, verses 1 to 13. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds, each one walking in his uprightness. But come here, you sons of the sorceress, you offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? Are you not children of transgression? offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rock. Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion. They, they are your lot. Even to them you have poured out a drink offering. You have offered a grain offering. Should I receive comfort in these? On a lofty and high mountain you have set your bed. Even there you went up to offer sacrifice, and behind the doors and their posts you have set up your remembrance. For you have uncovered yourself to those other than me. You have gone up to them, you have enlarged your bed, you have made a covenant with them. You have loved their bed where you saw their hand. You went to the king with ointment. You increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers afar off. You debased yourself even to Sheol. You are wearied in the length of your way, yet you did not say, there is no hope. You have found the life of your hand. Therefore, you were not grieved. And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to heart? Is it not because I have been silent from of old that you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness and your works, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you but the wind will carry them all away. A breath will take them. But he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Well, that's our text. I want to give you a quick overview of how it's organized, and then we'll look at some details. And keep in mind as we talk about this text that throughout this text, even though the words are coming out of Isaiah's mouth, it is God himself speaking very directly. Well, in the first verses, verses 1 and 2, God sets before us the basic problem. It's the deceptive reality of death. 
Death is a deceptive reality because it seems to make no distinction between two kinds of people. You know, perhaps the most obvious truth of life is this. Everyone dies. Everyone dies. Now, God identifies the first group here as the righteous. And he points out that few people realize that for the person who is part of that group, death is often a blessing. And ultimately, for everyone in that group, death is a blessing. Now, in verses 3 through 12, God turns his attention to the second group. These are the people whom God identifies as the sons of the sorcerer the offspring of the adulterer and the harlot. I wouldn't want that label, would you? We can call them the unrighteous in contrast to the righteous that we've met in verses 1 and 2. Now, both the righteous and the unrighteous in this passage are Israelites by birth, but they're very different from each other. And the fundamental difference between them is not primarily in the quality of their lives, although the quality of their lives does differ. The difference between them arises from the objects of their worship. The people whom God calls the righteous worship him, the true God of Israel, the one creator God. The unrighteous, on the other hand, are worshiping idols. Now, God has much to say in these verses 3 through 12 about how worshiping idols leads the unrighteous into a horribly corrupt way of life. Now, the last verse in our passage is verse 13, and verse 13 gives us that glimpse into life after death that I mentioned earlier. It shows that while both the righteous and the unrighteous will die, A very different destiny awaits these two groups of people. Well, let's look at some of the details of the text now. Let's start by rereading the first two verses of the chapter, and then I want to jump down to verses 20 and 21, which are not really part of the chunk we're going to be looking at. I want to do that because those two verses provide an important contrast with verses 1 and 2. Now, as I read these verses, I want you to be looking for an important word that appears twice. See if you can pick it out. All right, verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah 57. The righteous perishes, and no man takes it to heart. Merciful men are taken away, while no one considers that the righteous is taken away from evil. He shall enter into peace. They shall rest in their beds each one walking in his uprightness. Now, jump down to verses 20 and 21 in Isaiah 57. God says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea, which cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Did you catch the repeated word? It's peace, isn't it? It's the word peace. Now, when I have time, I like to visit cemeteries. I think cemeteries are fascinating places. I really do. 
When we were kids, we used to go to cemeteries and do those rubbings of the stones. Some of you have probably done that. The inscriptions on gravestones are really interesting. Now, in upstate New York, where me young and I used to live, there was a tiny cemetery, and I remember one gravestone that just made me laugh. All it said on it was, I told you I was sick. <laughs> that guy had a good sense of humor. Now, you can also look these up online. I like this one. Here lies the body of Jonathan Br- Blake, stepped on the gas instead of the brake. All right? I like that one. But usually the inscriptions are serious, because death is serious business, isn't it? There's one phrase, one epitaph that appears over and over again. R-I-P. Rest in peace. Now, there's not necessarily anything Christian about these words, although Christians often put them on their gravestones. They simply reflect the idea that death, when it finally comes, appears to bring an end to the struggles of life. But here in Isaiah chapter 57, a special word for peace appears, and I think you probably know what it is. It's the Hebrew word shalom. Shalom doesn't mean the mere absence of struggle or strife. Shalom is not what we get in the Middle East when there is a temporary ceasefire. Shalom is a positive word. It means fullness of life, wellness, satisfaction, completeness, a good place to be, a good way to be. God says here in verse 2 that when the righteous person dies, he will experience Shalom. He says in verse 29, uh, 21, that when the unrighteous person dies, he will never have shalom. Now here God is reminding us that appearances can be deceptive. He's pulling back that curtain and giving us a quick look at life beyond the grave. You see, when a righteous person dies, it may seem that God has abandoned him or her. It may seem that that person is no better off than an unbeliever when he or she dies. But I want you to notice that little phrase in verse 1. God says, no one takes it to heart. No one takes it to heart. We're going to see that again in verse 11. God wants us very much to take this truth to heart that death for believers is not a tragedy. Now, when people we love who are believers are ill, we pray for them, don't we? And we rejoice when they escape death. But one day, God will choose not to answer those prayers. Remember, when that happens, the death of believers is not a tragedy. It's the beginning of a new kind of life, a life of shalom, a life that is better than anything that we have experienced up till now. We'll come back to that idea later. Now, as we move into verse 3, God turns his attention to the people who most need to hear the message of this chapter, the people that we have labeled the unrighteous. And God's outrage is apparent in verses 3 and 4. He says, Come here, you sons of the sorceress." <clears throat> You offspring of the adulterer 
and the harlot. Whom do you ridicule? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue? These are the idol worshipers of Judah. God is saying, you don't belong to me. Yeah, you're genetically Israelites, but because you reject me spiritually, you are like bastard children. Note how they treat God's messenger, Isaiah. They make a wide mouth and stick out the tongue. They're doing this to Isaiah. You remember doing that when you were a kid? That's what they're doing when Isaiah preaches. These are unbelievers. These are people who reject God and they reject his messenger. They refuse to listen to his prophets and instead they worship and serve the idols and the gods of Canaan. But their problem is not simply their choice of the wrong object of worship. You know, idol worship in Judah was not simply about going to a different temple than the temple of Yahweh. It was not only about praying and offering sacrifices to other gods, because Canaanite religion was very much a participatory affair. And so God begins to describe their practices in verses 5 and 6. Notice what he says. He says, Are you not children of transgression, offspring of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with gods under every green tree, slaying the children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? Canaanite religion was a fertility religion. Its goal was to motivate the natural powers to provide rain and provide sunshine so that the crops would grow and the flocks would expand and the families would grow. It was a fertility religion. Now, most Canaanite religion was carried out in places that the Bible calls high places. These are hilltops, usually planted with evergreen trees that were viewed as a sign of fertility because they never turn brown. That's one of the reasons why we have Christmas trees, oddly enough. Now, besides offering animal sacrifices and praying to idols at these high places, the people of Judah participated in ritual sex, a grossly immoral form of worship. But there was one particular practice of Canaanite religion that was not carried out at the high places, but down in the valleys. There, many Israelites, like the Canaanites, offered children to the god Molech. Some they merely waved before the idol in a kind of a baby dedication. Some they burned alive. Some they sacrificed and poured out their blood at the altar before Molech. Now, in verses 7 through 10, God continues to describe the sins of these people of Judah. He pictures their sin over and over again as spiritual adultery. Now, I think you know that in the prophetic books of the Old Testament, God often pictures Israel as being married to himself. Unfaithfulness to him, he pictures as spiritual adultery. And spiritual adultery primarily took two forms, one that we've, one we've seen already, 
It's the worship of idols. It's the offering of sacrifices of various kinds and all the things that went along with that. The other sin that God viewed as spiritual adultery was the making of alliances with foreign nations for the purpose of military protection. And in verses 7 through 10, we can see both of these sins. In verses 7 and 8, God is clearly referring to idol worship. He pictures the people of Judah climbing into bed with their false gods. Do you see the references to bed there? This is a very graphic picture. God says, you are married to me. I am your husband, yet you are sleeping with false gods. And then in verses 9 and 10, God addresses the sin of seeking foreign alliances. Here he pictures past and future generations of the people of Judah as being like an adulterous wife who abandons her husband and runs after other men. You may be wondering why God condemned Judah, why God condemned Judah for seeking military alliances. They did live in a dangerous world, didn't they? All around them, there were powers. There were the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. Powerful empires were constantly buffeting them and threatening them. Was it wrong for the people of Judah to seek military means to protect themselves? Don't nations do that today? Well, the answer is that it was wrong because God had promised to protect Israel himself. And time and time again, he proved his power to do so, didn't he? He rescued them in the Exodus. He rescued them over and over again during the times of the judges. He rescued them in Isaiah 36 or 37 and 38 when Sennacherib and his army came and threatened Judah and Jerusalem. Now, Hezekiah was the king at that time. And Hezekiah was a wise and godly man. When the soldiers of Sennacherib came and said to Hezekiah and to his people, surrender now or you will suffer, Hezekiah didn't call his troops to assemble. He went to the temple and he prayed. And that night, God's angel came and executed 186,000 Assyrian soldiers And when the soldiers who were still alive woke up in the morning and saw their dead comrades on their cots, they very quickly packed up their tents and went home. Now, you would think that that event and the other events that the Israelites had experienced would be enough to convince them that whatever the danger was, God could protect them. But they stubbornly continued to seek alliances They turned to Egypt, they turned to Assyria, they turned to Babylon at various times. They turned to them all, and sadly, every time that they did, they suffered. Notice how God describes Judah in verses 9 and 10. She's like a woman who dresses in her finest clothes, puts on her most expensive perfume, and then runs after foreign kings with gifts in her hands. Listen to verse 9. You went to the king with ointment. You increased your perfumes. You sent your messengers afar off. You even descended to Sheol. You're wearied in the length of your way. Notice that last phrase. 
You are wearied in the length of your way. He's saying, you are like a woman, first trying to interest this man, then another man, and then another. In the last decades before the Babylonians came and conquered Judah, her rulers would run from one empire to another for help, begging for protection, offering money, saying, just take care of us. But they never found the security that they sought. Isn't it sad? Isn't it pitiful? Don't we instinctively know that the picture of a woman chasing men isn't the way it should be? Especially when that woman already has a husband who loves her and who will protect her if she will only trust in him. The true and only real God of Israel, the true and only real God of creation, offered them security and prosperity as a nation through obedience. He offered them shalom and eternal life as individuals through faith in him. But so many of them turned down his offer. They preferred the works of darkness and the pleasures of sin. They preferred the things that went on at the high places to what went on in the temple. They thought that they could enjoy their sin and find security in their idols and in their alliances. But they were wrong. Now, as we move to verses 11 through 13, God brings the discussion back full circle. He finishes his words to the unrighteous and then reminds us of the blessed status of the righteous. Listen as I read verse 13 again. First, he's speaking to the unrighteous. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. But the wind will carry them away. A breath will take them. But he who trusts in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Now, for those of us who believe that the Bible is the word of God and believe the message that it contains, there's no surprise here. We know the fates that await the saved and the unsaved. But those who die unsaved have a huge surprise waiting for them. That's what God is referring to when he says in verse 11, And of whom have you been afraid or feared that you have lied and not remembered me, nor taken it to heart? What's their lie? Their lie is a lie that they tell themselves. It's the lie of self-deception. They think that they don't need God. But when death approaches, their alliances and their resources and their idols won't rescue them. When death arrives, those stone figures that are nailed down will not respond to their prayers. Those idols will be as powerless against God's judgment as dust is powerless before the wind. And if they cross the line from mortal life into death without turning in faith to God, it'll be too late. Now here I think of the terrorists who flew their airplanes into the World Trade Center. 
They thought that their God would reward them for their act of mass murder. They expected to wake up after death in a place of endless pleasure. And I can only imagine the shock on their faces when they woke up not in heaven, but in hell. Imagine their dismay when they discovered that the next step on their eternal itinerary was not a heaven, it was not a harem staffed with 70 beautiful virgins, but hell to be followed at the proper time by judgment at the great white throne and then the lake of fire. But let's not miss the end of verse 13. Here we have a precious and comforting promise. God says, he who puts his trust in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Notice that little verb, inherit. Verse 2 tells us that when the righteous person dies, he or she will enter into shalom, an existence of peace and abundance and joy. And verse 13 tells us for the believing Israelite, those who are in God's special covenant, an inheritance waited after death. That inheritance includes resurrection. It includes life in Messiah's future kingdom. It includes life for eternity in the new heavens and new earth. Can you think of anything better? Can you think of anything better? I can't. In contrast, the inheritance of the, of the unrighteous, the unbeliever, is worse than worthless. Now, I skipped over verse 6. Listen now as I read the first part of that verse. God is speaking to the unrighteous, and he says, Among the smooth stones of the stream is your portion, your inheritance. They, they are your lot. God is telling the unrighteous, those who refuse to turn to him and who die unsaved, that their inheritance is as useless to them as real estate at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean would be to us. And this concept of the inheritance that awaits each person after death is absolutely central to this passage. It's on that inheritance that I want to focus our attention now. So as I move toward a conclusion, I have a question for you. If you were to die today, what would your inheritance be? What would be waiting for you? For the Old Testament saint, for the Israel saved by grace through faith, saved in the same way that we are, the inheritance had two parts. God mentions one part in verse 13. It's the land of Israel itself. God had promised that to his people, and one day they will possess it. But there's a second part of the inheritance that's only alluded to here. It's the best part of the inheritance. It's the promise of eternal resurrection life and fellowship with God and with all believers of all time. Now, you probably know Hebrews chapter 11. We often call it the chapter of the heroes of the faith. In this chapter, the author of Hebrews speaks of Old Testament believers who did great things because of their faith in God. People like Noah, 
like Abraham, like Sarah, like Moses, like Joshua. Their confidence in God's promises motivated them to serve him faithfully and to take great risks in order to do that. Now, I want you to turn to that chapter, and I want you to notice something interesting. As you go through that chapter, and as you hear of these great things done by the heroes of the faith, something unexpected appears in verse 13. The author says, all these, all of those heroes I've just talked to you about, died in faith, not having received the promises. And again, at the end of the chapter, after he talks about some more heroes of the faith, he's talking of Gideon and Barak and Samson and David and the prophets. He says again in verse 39, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. Now, it would seem that the author of Hebrews is saying that these people trusted God. They acted in confidence upon his promises, and yet God didn't keep his promises to them. But if you finish the chapter, if you read verses 39 and 40 together, the picture becomes clear. All these, having obtained the good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now, the key to understanding these two verses is the little switch from they to us. Did you notice it? They are the Old Testament saints. Old Testament believers. The us is us. New Testament believers. Christians. According to the writer of Hebrews, we will all be made perfect together. What's he referring to? He's referring to the common element in the inheritance of every person who ever has been and ever will be saved by grace through faith from the time of Adam all the way until time ends and eternity begins. And that common element is the reception of a a resurrection body and living eternally to enjoy God's blessings. Every believer of all time will receive a resurrection body. And it will be in those resurrection bodies that we will enjoy the other parts of our inheritance, namely the individual rewards that we will earn as a result of how well each one of us has served God. Among those rewards will be the promise that we will rule and reign with Christ. But there's more to the story. Because resurrection is not only for saved people. I want you to listen to a few words from John chapter 5, verses 24 to 29. Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has everlasting life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God 
and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Now, do you hear what the Lord Jesus is saying? He's saying that everyone, the saved and the unsaved, will be resurrected. Those who have believed the good news will come forth to the resurrection of life. This is the shalom that we've read of in the book of Isaiah, and that shalom will be ours also. Those who have not believed the good news will come forth to the resurrection of condemnation. And their destination will be the lake of fire. There will be no shalom for them. Now, don't misunderstand what the Lord is saying here. When he speaks of those who have done good and those who have done evil, he's not saying that people are saved by good works. He's saying that those who have been saved by grace through faith in him will do good works because God changes what we are, doesn't he? Just as it was in Isaiah chapter 57, it is still true today. The kind of life that a person lives reflects the object of his worship. Now, as I finish, I repeat God's question of Isaiah 57 to you. It doesn't matter that you're a regular attender of CBC or some other church. What matters is how you answer this question. Have you taken this message to heart? Have you taken it to heart? If you were to die today, what inheritance would be waiting for you? If you can say, I know that if I die today, shalom is waiting for me because I put my trust in Christ, then rejoice, rejoice, and remember that death, when it comes, is a blessing because it's a step to a better time. But if you can't say that, I invite you now to take God's message to heart. Change your inheritance because his mercy is available to you now, but it won't be available to you when death comes. Receive God's gift of eternal life. Put your trust in his son. Simply say to him, I know I'm a sinner. I know that I deserve condemnation. But I believe that your son died on the cross for me and bore my sins and rose from the dead to prove that you have accepted the gift. Say this to the father and he will change your inheritance. He will promise you shalom, and you can count on that promise.
Let's pray. Oh, Father, your mercy is a wonderful thing. It's an incredible thing. We spoke about it earlier today. But we really can't get our arms around it. We really can't comprehend it. But we can receive it. Because you have said that you will never turn anyone away who comes in faith to you. Father, don't let any person in this room be so foolish as to say, I don't need that mercy. Or as to say, maybe I'll take it some other day. Because some other day may not come. And if there is a person in this room who remains spiritually dead, I pray that you would give that person no peace until he or she turns to you seeking your mercy and receives the gift of eternal life. Father, for those of us who have received the gift, we thank you how good it is to know that nothing can ever separate us from your love in Christ Jesus. Amen.